0: I'm Duncan Hilton. This is the Religious Life Podcast. There are any number of reasons to talk to Paul Angler, As a community organizer in labor unions or in the movements for global climate justice, immigrant rights, or anti-war. Paul can regale you with stories of street protests, imprisonments, and hunger strikes. As a movement-building strategist, Paul can lecture you on the history of social movements and social change theory, as captured in This Is An Uprising, the 2016 book Paul co-wrote with his brother Mark, a book about the craft of building nonviolent movements for social change. As a licensed therapist and decades-long meditation practitioner, Paul can talk with clarity and vulnerability about his stoic German Catholic upbringing in Iowa, the impact of the death of his father and grandmother when he was in elementary school and his mom's struggles as a single mother. He can talk about his fears from struggling with dyslexia and the violence that he experienced from being bullied in his neighborhood and the anxiety and depression that caused. As a friend, I've known Paul since 2016. Paul can be encouraging, funny, and a bit kooky, equal parts mad scientist, crazy uncle, and teddy bear. However, for the first episode of this podcast, I wanted to talk to Paul for two other reasons. First, in 2006, Paul co-founded the Center for the Working Poor and has lived there ever since. The center is in Los Angeles and based on the model of a Catholic worker house. Its core principles are strategic nonviolence, voluntary simplicity, and faith in action. Paul talks with humility about the community's shortcomings and what those shortcomings have taught him as he coaches others to start movements and communities. And that leads me to the second reason I wanted to talk to Paul. He's not only created a community, but he's helped to incubate movements and communities as the co-founder of the Momentum Training Institute. Momentum has trained thousands of people and launched a handful of movements, most famously Sunrise, a movement to stop the climate crisis. While Paul has spent most of his time working with non-religious groups and movements, he's been formed by what he describes as the mystical and contemplative branch of Christianity, namely the teachers Thomas Keating and Cynthia Bourgeau, as well as Buddhist teachers and practices. Paul and I talk about some of the key concepts he has developed in incubating movements, including front-loading, creating the DNA of movement, and movement ecology. We also talk about his thoughts about starting a training institute to launch faith-based movements and communities. One of the moments that stands out most from the interview is our conversation at the end about hope. Not only are there the challenges of the political and environmental crises which Paul strategizes about professionally, but Paul is going through a self-described middle-aged crisis as his personal ambitions and professional plans have crumbled. One of the images that inspires him at this moment is of a thousand flowers blooming, people experimenting with new communities and new ways of life in a thousand ways as the ground cracks open beneath them. Talking with Paul encouraged me to nurture what's flowering in my own life. I hope this interview does the same for others. A little housekeeping before the interview. There are links in the show notes to the books and thinkers which Paul references. This podcast is not supported by grants or an institution, but only by listeners like you. Please consider donating at DuncanHilton.net. You can also find links there to subscribe to my weekly newsletter and to join weekday morning prayer and meditation groups. Please write me at duncan at duncanhilton.net if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Paul Angler. In 2006, you started the Center for the Working Poor. and. As it says on your website, it's an interfaith intentional community inspired by the Catholic worker movement and new monasticism committed to strategic nonviolent social change. I'm curious about that choice. You're living with a bunch of strangers in a shared living situation. What, What was going on for you when you made that choice?
1: Well, I kind of feel like a failure about my own community right now. Like I need to <laughs> I feel like Appreciate the intention of, of my own community is not very good. So it's hard. And I feel like I have to confess that. Yeah. Uh, also, I don't really affiliate that much with the Catholic workers anymore. You know, mm. and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that.
0: Let's follow your intention to confess. Tell me more about the failures of your community.
1: Well, my community is 15 years old, okay? When we started, I had a model of how to be in community that was a combination of a lot of different things. Catholic worker, I visited a lot of Catholic worker communities, and I didn't do front-loading. I didn't, at that time, in 2006, I didn't understand front-loading. I didn't even come up with that concept of basically how do you create the foundations of a community And so it was really built on a group of labor and community organizers, and it was very queer, you know, and I think in a good way. The founding core was organizers, queer organizers, and it was very interfaith. It was Jewish and Christian and all these things. And it was a lot of it was built on the experience of what we call salting, which is we would have these communities of people that would go into hotels or food service, and organize these hotels and restaurants into unions. And that was a real powerful experience. And I was one of the founders of this program that would create communities of people living together and doing the SALT program. And it was incredibly transformative. So when I first started, I was replicating a lot of that model. As time has gone on, there's been so many different iterations. And because the front loading wasn't strong, I was very dependent on the different movements around me to recruit people into the community and have a common ground a common dna cultural and and movement dna and when those people leave then the dna i'm the one holding it through my embodiment and whatever and then you become the resonant a-hole of your community because you're trying to hold the intention and people <laughs> don't want the attention right? <laughs> so uh part of my humiliation process which is mm. a gateway to humility is mm. is losing control of what I feel the intention of the community is. And as time has gone on, there's been less and less and less intention and less of the DNA. It mm-hmm. used to be everyone would show up to Centering Prayer. We had a weekly Centering Prayer group. We would have one or two interns that lived in the community that worked with me full time. We had a nonprofit in the the, the house community. we very integrated together. So we had mm-hmm. a mission that was rooted in the house and lots of people were involved in it, even though they had their own jobs and stuff. Nowadays, the nonprofit is really just me and I'm living <laughs> in the community and people sometimes resent the fact that the nonprofit is embedded in the house. They don't like me having meetings in the living room as much as they did in the past. And uh, very few people show up to the Saturday prayer group and lots of people are burnout activists so they don't wanna get involved in lots of things. Mm-hmm. We're involved in, you know, there's cycles. One of the things that you have to think about, I think is really important, is you have to think about the pipeline. Mm. What I mean by the pipeline or the structure is that you have to have a formation process to get people into the community. I haven't had that. And I just recruited people from the, commun- from the projects that I was working on at the time. So a lot of people came in through momentum projects, right? If not now, or... Cosecha and stuff, they would come into my community through that. But the problem is that I was dependent on those pipelines. I didn't have a pipeline of my own. So when mm-hmm. those movements collapse, now the pipeline is Craigslist. You know, that's a horrible <laughs> pipeline. Yeah, you know, that's a horrible place to get people who are interested in your community. I mean, it's better that it exists than not. And actually, occasionally you find a really good person on Craigslist. You find somebody who's really is interested in community on Craigslist. But the point, what I'm trying to say is you need a pipeline. You know you need to have a formation process for people to join your community with high levels of intention if that's what you want. If you want a low-level intentional community, that's not a bad thing. The fact that any community exists outside of the dominant institutions is a great thing. But if I were to do my community again, I would do it in a totally different way.
0: <laughs> so just to unpack that term front-loading, because I hear your story speak to the, the value of it and what happens when you don't do it. Certainly, I don't think anyone wants to be the resident hole. That sounds really hard uh, It's about creating the DNA for an organization. And that's about the organization's story, its strategy, its structure and its culture. Can you give the the one minute overview of front loading? What does it actually look like in practice? It's a core team that gets together. And they
1: uh, the reason I'm taking a big breath is because it's like everything is more complicated. So front loading was a concept that we that I coined, right? Which was basically how do you incubate mass protest movements? Mm. And most people have this concept that movements emerge and you make it up as you go along and you have processes like consensus that makes decisions and the leadership of the movement makes decisions as you they go along uh in reality this doesn't actually happen that way Mm. Uh, and people, a lot of anarchists or what we call horizontalists people that want to believe that everyone's equal there's no leadership or whatever they want to believe that they can trust the process and it's just going to emerge. And there is also a little bit of that within Catholic workers or within different anarchist cultures, even in spiritual circles. It's like, oh, the group conscience is going to, you know, is going to. And there's even this concept that 12-step is functioning that way. Absolutely not. 12-step is so, <laughs> what, we, what I would call front-loaded, right? We learned this from the Serbian revolutionaries that spent a year kind of creating a constitution creating what we call the story strategy structure and culture the dna of the movement it has like a sandbox that then you can give people lots of autonomy the movement can emerge there's a lots of things that it has to make decisions about and emerge but it's within really strict really strict guidelines the idea of that metaphor is that organizations also, when they're born, they have it. Now, a lot of that for hierarchical organizations, a lot of that is built into the founder, right? Cyprian, the abbot of the Kamodlis Monastery in Big Sur, he studied monastic life. And he said the difference between his experience, because he traveled India and was in many different monasteries or what's called ashrams in India, he said the difference of ashrams and Catholic monasticism is that the rule is the guru. in mm-hmm. The rule is the guru. The guru holds the DNA, right? Now, there's right. good things about that. The guru has a complexity of holding that. And, and that's probably what happened with Jesus too. Jesus hold the DNA. And then when he died, the Holy Spirit came down and they had to develop a different, they didn't have the guru to, to keep, keep the DNA. So they had to create collective processes. And you know, the systemization of that in monastic rules or in the 12 steps and in the 12 traditions and the 12 concepts is a front-loading that AA does. In social movements, we created a process we call front-loading. And why we say front-loading is because a lot of the major decisions and a lot of what makes the organization, the story, the strategy, the structure, and the culture is set at the beginning. Right. And then people have to learn that and be initiated into that. And they have to work within the confines of that. And then when they no longer can't, then they get spit out of the of the culture and, or you, it collapses and you create a new one. And um, this, this lesson that we learned was incredibly powerful. It allowed us to birth these new movements. Now, now lots of people still to this day, one of the critiques of what we did because we, we started all these new movements is that they said, we didn't understand that just because you do the DNA, there's still so much more that has to be built out. There's still mm-hmm. The leadership has to take a lot of responsibility and really flush out the DNA and still has to be in power. There still needs to be leadership that makes decisions and stuff. And so there was a critique of our model, but it's not just me. Uh, a lot of the great thinkers of, of how to build community, the person who who was one of the, the biggest leaders of all the eco-village, um, who wrote a book, I think it's called Living Together, Eco-Village. You can put it in the notes, the the book. Yeah. Um, But her realization is pretty much about front-loading. If you want a sustainable community, you have to really build it, and you have to be clear about what's in and what's out, and and you have to have an initiation process to really understand it. Same thing with the empowerment manual. I think that's – I'm dyslexic, so i mess up on some of the names, but Starhawk, who's a great thinker of different permaculture ideas and consensus decision-making and a great movement leader and a countercultural figure within the neo – Pagan or Wiccan revival in the United States. She wrote a whole book about community, and a lot of her conclusion was that you you also need to go through some sort of front loading process. You need to really yeah. define what it is, and this is what people don't do. <laughs> they don't mm. want to, and the reason they don't want to do that is because it's incredibly time consuming. It's very hard to get a core to work through it. It, it brings the conflicts up from the beginning to sort of deal with the conflicts and and get a lot of alignment from the beginning before you start. It's a lot easier just to start without that alignment, but then it collapses much faster and it's not as resilient, right? Because it's very hard unless you front load. When you predict problems, our DNA predicts major problems to our organism and then it bakes it in so that we have the wisdom to predict uh, that problem and, and fix it. Whether it's a disease or a virus, we have the code that makes our immune system be able to cope with that virus. And people who don't have that in their DNA die, you know, right. vast misery. You need the DNA, you need the DNA around the common problems or else you die. I
0: remember talking to a woman who was in a Camp Hill community, which is like large, and her advice was, you got just got to start doing it. Because you can overthink things.
1: Well, what she's saying is right. And it has been our experience in momentum. That the story I always tell is one of my mentors, Von Marovic. I asked him what was the hardest part of the revolution. And I thought he was going to say, when we actually took over, we occupied the capital, you know, we occupied, and we, we had a general strike that shut down the economy with tens of thousands of people putting their lives on the line. He's like, no, that wasn't that hard. I was like, well, what's hard? And he says, starting the front-loading. That was mm. the hard. One. Creating the core, having the, the front-loading product, that's the hardest because no one believes in it. You have to believe. You have to be the prophetic promoter. You have to believe in it. And you don't have any resources. And you got to put in sweat equity. It's like starting something is the hardest. You have to create different models that allow you to front-loading, that give you the confidence, gives you the strength and support to do that because yeah. it's very, very hard.
0: So you're preaching to the choir, one, I love... Planning and two, I've started enough things and watched them fall apart to see that the, the conflicts have been surfaced earlier. That would have been a better time to work through them. But I have in my head the voice of people who might say, look at St. Francis. The Franciscans have been around for hundreds of years. Francis, he had a spiritual experience. God spoke to him when the authority of that movement comes from his preaching and his experience, and he wasn't a very organized person. Or thinking about Bill W. and AA, he didn't go to a training, as far as I know, to create DNA, although I absolutely agree that the DNA of 12-step is incredibly well-defined and allows this amazing freedom and growth to happen independently. So I wonder if you look at some of those examples, whether it's the Catholic workers, the Franciscans, or 12-step, how does it unfold in reality?
1: Well, first, let's talk about 12-step
0: yeah bill w was
1: incredibly ineffective for a yeah. full year he tried doing shit and he went <laughs> not go anywhere until he met dr bob and dr bob and him developed the steps they develop and then it not only that they front loaded mm. and it took them six years to get the you know the steps all mm-hmm. worked out depending on where the beginning and where the end of that process <laughs> is but they had to front load it, and they had to do that before it could go viral because before mm-hmm didn't have really concrete the steps. They had an informal thing going on, right? So there was an incredibly well-organized process mm. which had a lot to do with writing the big book right mm. and then after the big book it took another six to 12 years to do the traditions and a lot of that happened because they went viral they started having mm. hundreds of groups all over the country and they all started collapsing so bill w was systematizing the the best practices and front-loading all the best practices and then he had to get all the groups to adopt uh The the traditions, which, by the way, at the beginning, lots of groups did not like the traditions. Now Everyone thinks like, oh, everyone loved traditions. No, no, no. They did not like it. They did not like it to begin with. But now, in hindsight, everyone agrees that the traditions were one of the reasons why 12-step is the most sustainable and largest mutual aid society that we've experienced in the modern world. I mean, millions and millions of people use that model. And it was because it was very well systematized, Mm. right? And he went through a long process of doing it. It wasn't emergent. His mm. emergence would be just people figuring out all the groups figuring out. No, he systematized it, and then he went through a process of getting alignment around all the groups to adopt the steps. And then he did another systemization that most people don't even know, which is at the general assembly level. He went through another process. He basically said to make this this movement sustainable, I have to take myself as the dna out of the process and so he mm. developed 12 concepts or the the 12 proce- principles of the world fellowship which was his idea of systematizing front-loading the the rules for the higher level organization so that it wasn't dependent on him right mm. and that took a, over a decade he went through multiple layers and each layer allowed the organization to be sustainable and grow now when it comes to francis this is very common So what happens a lot of times with these religious movements is a lot of times the contemplative master, this is the same with St. Benedict, the same with nation, the same with Jesus, is that you have a leader who has a revelation that's incredibly powerful that they experience, and then they're trying to systematize it and they do it through an apprenticeship model. They hand it off, but for it to become a movement, for the disciples to actually build the early Christian church, they have to systematize. And Mm. so it was really St. Paul who systematized Christianity and the same thing with Francis, okay? All these people joined. There's tens of thousands of Franciscans that were dropping out. Now Francis, he did not front load the rule, but he was a stickler, okay? Mm -hmm. He was a stickler for the rules, not the (laughs) systematized rules, But he was hardcore at having basic principles and then enforcing them through his will. Mm. Stories of him chastising the monks for having their own building and coming back and ripping apart the huts that the monks (laughs) had had because they weren't living in true poverty, right? (laughs) So Francis had... A very clear understanding of what was in and out, but it was really held by his very radical commitment to the Gospels. And he kept on hammering on those and he rejected the systemization of the rules. Now, that's very common among the first, the founders, because they hold it and embody it and enforce it based on their credibility and charisma. But it, within the Franciscans, the reason why it became sustainable is because it went through that process. Hmm of translating the man to the movement, right? And, and and systematizing the juice, the mystical juice of the founder.
0: I'm aware that many of the listeners are clergy are thinking about how this applies to their starting ministry in a church or in a diocese. I'm wondering if you can speak to how the front-loading process is the same or different if you're doing it within an institution. And maybe what are some of the challenges and opportunities when you're doing that?
1: Richard Rohr has this quote, which is the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. I'm probably butchering the quote, but it's a very Franciscan idea. It's like abandon the dominant institution, just create the alternative. That's the best critique of the what's not working. When it comes to front-loading, that has been our experience, is that even if you're working within the institutions to birth something new you generally have to create a firewall. You have to create a a real space. And that's very hard to do within an institution because they have money and power and culture that they're, and I'm not saying it's all, they're trying to protect their own institution and their own culture. When you create something new, it's threatening to that existing thing. Now, lots of people say something has to die before something new happens. I don't know if that's it. I just think you need space. And uh, most of the time, it's not actually born within the institution it's born outside of the institution or with some support of the institution, if you're lucky. That has been our experience with front-loading social movements, is when we've tried to incubate them within the labor movements, within the labor unions, or within established nonprofit organizations, they've had to break apart or they die because there's not a space to create that, right?
0: You use The term uh, movement ecology to describe the various institutions and organizations and players within a particular field. So for instance, in religion, it might be churches and congregations, religious orders. You may have faith-based organizing groups. I'm curious, with your organizer hat on, what you see when you look at the ecology of religious organizations and what's missing.
1: I don't know how to answer that. Because what I hear from you is what's missing within religious or spiritual institutions. And I think there's a bigger question, which is, where are you trying to go? Is religion just the, the revitalization of tribal and ethnic identity? Or is it an instrument of personal transformation? Or is it an instrument of just building community to provide services for people? Those are all very different ways of looking at religion and spirituality right how do you look at it well i'm a mystic Mm. so i think that there is these amazing technologies embedded in our tradition and i've been incredibly influenced and i consider my elders thomas keating cynthia bourgeois james finley Matthew Fox, um, and, and what we're talking about is, is not just in Christianity, but there's a perennial tradition of thousands of years of technologies on how to develop people in a specific way that even modern science has now discovered. Neuroscience has now discovered that all these monks in these spiritual disciplines do these magical things. A lot of that's through the vocabulary of mindfulness practice, right? Lots of people now are in this psychedelic renaissance that's happening. And they're having mystical experiences. And guess what? Having mystical experiences radically changes who you are. just rocks your world. And when they're studying this stuff through psychedelics, it resembles the the mystical experience through spiritual disciplines. But science doesn't know how to handle this. Well, you have these mystical experiences and then you have to actually integrate them. And integration is a bigger problem than Mm. whether or not have a liminal experience. The whole tradition is about how do we have a community that can hold these insights, right? These these, these mystical insights, how we can live in a way that is radically transformed through divine union and through the, the change in states of consciousness that allow us to, to peek into the divine and the presence of God, which is all around us all the time. Mm. It is the basic goodness, which is the imago dia, which is the the basic insight of mystical experience, which is that if we take away the ego, if we take away all of our individual stuff, that underneath it all is this ground of being, as great theologians have said. When you start collecting all these narratives of mystical experiences through psychedelics or through spiritual disciplines, one of the key concepts is that people get a sense of the divine indwelling, that underneath the ego, when they... Experience ego dissolution is just love. Mm. That's the inside of the mystics, and when you reconstruct the world based on that realization, based on divine union, to me, that's the kingdom of God. Once you start integrating that into how do we relate to each other, how do we relate to our partner, how do we relate to economics, right? The gift economy, hospitality, Donna, the different ways of talking about that, which is really experienced in monastic culture is the economic frame to hold mystical experience.
0: I'm so struck by your talking about mystical experience and the power of personal transformation. At the same time, I don't know anyone who's been as dedicated or involved as long in making political change. And so I heard you talk about how the inner experience can change how one relates to economics and that kind of thing. But I also hear you spend your professional life thinking about institutions and how to work from the outside in. I'm wondering, is it about working from the outside in, or is it more from the inside out, or is that the wrong metaphor altogether?
1: Well, the reason you're confused is because I'm confused too. <laughs> it's, these things have been very divided. There's very few people that have an integral approach that have integrated these mm. There's a big divide between personal transformation and working from the inside and the, the consciousness of mysticism in that, and then actually practically applying it to politics and institutions. That's a huge divide. And it's one that liberation theology, Gandhi in principled and strategic nonviolence, Gandhi acknowledged that he got it primarily, first and foremost, through the Christian tradition. And then its interpretation, the, D- the Tibetans and the Dalai Lama has done a, a great understanding of Principled nonviolence through Shante Diva and the way of the Bodhisattva and all this stuff is how do we think about political engagement through the spiritual practice of mysticism, right? So that's one piece. And then there's another piece, which is strategic nonviolence, which is like, Mm -hmm. who cares whether or not you feel love towards your enemy? It doesn't (laughs) actually work. You know, is it strategic? And a lot of my specialty is in strategic nonviolence. But strategic Mm -hmm. nonviolence and principled nonviolence actually go really well together. But we can't expect everyone to do spiritual and principled nonviolence, right? It's mm. very hard. Liberation theology is, I think, uh, really talking about the kingdom of God as a mystical vision and how to apply that to economics and to the world. But very few people make that connection. The the bide mm. between personal transformation and this mystical understanding of the universe and the kingdom of God, you would say, how does that actually... How does it deal with nationalism? How does it deal with politics? How does it deal with fighting for homeless services in 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 Los Angeles and criminal justice reform? There is very little integration, and that integration is something I'm trying to do. And a lot of times, it's confusing as hell because <laughs> I feel like you should integrate. <laughs> it, it's perfectly obvious. Why don't you understand? Like this goes with this, but for most people, it doesn't go together, right? Yeah. So when I'm just going on one of my intellectual tirades, I'm assuming that <laughs> that they connect and they don't, you know, that's why it's confusing. So you're you're not wrong about that. There's yeah. very few people that try to do that integration. Engage Buddhists, liberation theologists, Gandhi, some Quaker nonviolence people. Well, I have the
0: thought and the question i hear how hard the integration is. And I'm thinking of that phrase the church is the body of Christ. I think some people might argue that integration can't happen in any single individual and it has to happen within the context of a church or some team on a related question thinking about momentum i've always been struck in the trainings how you all ask groups to define are they trying to do personal transformation develop an alternative community or make social change i forget what the um, dominant institutions on the one hand, I hear you're saying, I want to try and integrate these different paths in myself, and I think other people should too. But then there's also a certain wisdom in deciding, is my main focus personal transformation or is my main focus building alternative community? Can, well, am I getting it, that it's
1: right? 100% right. The mystical body of the Christ is like the best social movement ecology metaphor. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Because the reality of it is you're a cell in a body. Now when we do this exercise and we have people say, you're going to form a community. What is the the charism of the community? You can't be everything. Mm. But you can be in relationship with everything. That's the distinction. You can't mm. be everything, but you can be in healthy relationship with everything, right? Mm. Because when you try to own and do everything as your primary charism And form follows functions. Your institution can't hold that. It's too complex. It's too hard. It's like a Mm -hmm. cell trying to be the body, right? You can't do Mm -hmm. that. But if you are a cell and you relate to the body, the whole body, and you're in healthy relationship with all these different things, which I will say is very rare, you know, great social (laughs) movements on accident create good social movements ecology where they're relating and working with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the second thing I want to say before I forget, is I am into interspirituality. I'm very influenced by Adam Bucko, interspiritual, new monasticism, Rory McEntee are very good friends of mine. And a lot of that comes also out of my teacher, Thomas Keating, who was quintessential interspiritual, which is we have to define a perennial tradition. We have to have a universal understanding of mysticism. But that doesn't mean you don't have a mother tongue or that you don't experience it through your tradition. I think Adam and most people who are in that believe that we need these traditions. Inner spirituality doesn't eliminate the traditions, it it renews them. And it renews them in a way that they can be in dialogue and not tribal with each other. Now there is specifics that you have, but there is some universal elements.
0: (laughs) I know part of developing a DNA is the story and it's not just one's own personal story. But a collective story, thinking about this moment in the life of American progressive Christianity, I wonder what you see as the story of now. What's a story that inspires you or moves you, if you have one at all?
1: You know, the mysteries of faith is like... I have prayer periods where I feel like I surrender everything to God and I feel so connected. And then the next moment I like want to control the washing machine and that it's broken. And <laughs> I have no patience and faith that God's gonna fix that thing. You know what I mean? Like my faith is is very thin.
0: Yeah, as long as it's as big as a mustard seed, you're okay.
1: <laughs> it's like, you know. Like, especially I'm struggling now with middle age crisis stuff, and mm. it's humbling. It's like, I thought I had much more faith than I really do. The faith is a muscle. It's a muscle to surrender to the divine indwelling, to the, to the cosmic order, and to listen to that, to be led and, and guided by the Holy Spirit all the time, and, and to do that out of love. That's my faith. That's a hard practice. I keep on exercising, man. (laughs) It's like I got to do my spiritual push ups all the time because my ego does not surrender. It takes all my will to surrender my will. The cracking of the cosmic egg and Mm -hmm. Richard Moore's framework around this is right that modernity has cracked our cosmic understanding of the world and our place in it, right? And I think secular science has melded with a a capitalist vision of progress, business as usual. And it doesn't work. That vision is, as Thoreau said, leaves most men in lives of quiet desperation. Cynthia Beaujau, Tillier Desha, Joanna Macy, are all these leaders that are trying to think, how do we have a mystical cosmological vision? that gives our life meaning. And then I think part of that vision works really well with the vision of where we're at in history. I think Joanna Macy does a great job. She's borrowed from other thinkers, from David Corton, with the idea of the great turning. And the idea of the great turning is, I think, is that our war, we are in the time of apocalypse, which means the unveiling. Like Our society ain't effing working. Twenty. 20- <laughs> Anywhere from like 18% to 25% of the people are taking hardcore psychotropic drugs. It's very unclear how many people are have chronic addiction. We're all chronically addicted to caffeine, but that seems to be healthy. It used to be we were complaining about watching television and playing Nintendo games. And that's just gotten worse. Now, you know, young people are constantly on social media. What the research has shown is that kids are more screwed up now than they were before, and they're more depressed, and there's an epidemic of mental health problems. And it's not just because we're diagnosing them more. It's like more kids are getting institutionalized because they want to kill themselves. So <laughs> it's like our culture and our society is falling apart, partly because capitalism, it treats us like things. It, it just assumes that it, it will meet our needs through through the market, and through us being individuals. Uh, And we're highly communal, naturally communal people. And the society that we built is not built around community, is not built around meeting deep emotional needs that all human beings have, that is built into our DNA. There's no getting around it. All the neuroscience, all the anthropology, maybe I shouldn't say all, but I mean, the dominant understanding That's coming from the study of human nature, of neurobiology, is all proving without a doubt that we need each other. And we Mm. need to be in these radically interdependent communities just to feel okay. And our society is not built for that at all. Mm. And it's going in the opposite direction. No wonder people have lived lives of quiet desperation is because our society is collapsing. Now, that's on top of the fact that economically, our whole model is about endless growth in a finite world. Climate change is just the icing on the cake. That's just where we're hitting the the ends of limits. We're, We're gonna hit peak everything, meaning we're hitting the barriers of a finite world in all levels, whether it's oil, whether it's air, we didn't even know this, but our democracy now is not sustainable. The level of polarization, the rebirth of ethno-nationalism that isn't just happening in the United States with Trump, is happening all around the globe, is not sustainable. Because if we all hunker down into tribal ethno-nationalism, it's just gonna create World War II all over again or World War I all over again.
0: I call that. And I also think about the story of now, the emotional tenor of it being. About hope. Is the hope for you just in being able to get honest about that? Hope. My hope
1: comes from a magic thing. It's part of the mystical experience. It's it's about liminality. The book that I always quote, and I think it's a masterpiece, is called Paradise Built in Hell. Mm. And it's Rebecca Solnick wrote it. And, and I think she's an amazing thinker and artist. This book is incredible because what it's saying is when these dominant institutions fall apart, when they're unsustainable, and when natural disaster hits, there's an earthquake and the market collapses, people revert back to what's called liminality or transitionary community that are super communal, that are a lot of times very mystical. The, the facade that is exposed by the t- apocalypse is not that deep. When when you throw people into the wilderness or into the desert, they re-experience gift economy. They really, really re-experience a, a mystical state of consciousness, even at, at a little bit. They experience that, that the world can be radically different and that it actually gives our life more meaning when we lived in this radically different way. The world is going through a dark night, is going through a liminality. Do we really have faith that the ground of being, that when things fall apart, that what's left is the basic goodness, not just of ourselves, that we can surrender to us falling apart, that God is there to hold us, is the ground of our being? That's the hope to me. Now, mm. Yesterday, did I have that hope when I was doing my work? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm like we gonna all die, and it's gonna suck. And people are alone. It's miserable. Like it's, it's rare that I I have that hope, right? But there are moments when I see it, and I see it when you do trainings. I see it right now. Even people are focusing on, and, and rightfully so, with the crisis and the catastrophe of hundreds of children being killed every single day by Israeli bombs in Gaza, right? And the horrific acts of Hamas, uh, of hostages and killing of civilians that are innocent. But the hope in that for me, partly because of my experience, I helped incubate and, and was very close to the formation of this group called If Not Now. And what I see is that even in this crisis there is this beautiful community that has all these people coming together that were kind of burnt out before this crisis the organization was on a decline and all of a sudden the crisis hits and this all these people flood back and start supporting each other in a way and start doing vigils and and explodes all over the the country yeah. dozens and dozens of places hundreds of people getting arrested my roommate danielle is takes over a highway with her friends to protest the the killings in Gaza and to ask for a ceasefire. Wow. That is the hope. That's the hope. Now, they they don't feel hope because they're like, I'm just doing this because of the crisis. But I don't assume that anybody's going to do that. The fact that people are responding that way is incredible. That gives me hope.
0: Someone was describing a flight they took in Eastern Europe, maybe in Poland, some deeply Catholic country, and the plane started to shake, and the fear took over of, oh no, this may be the last thing, and everyone whipped out their rosary beads and started praying. <laughs> I think what reminded me is when you were sharing about the hope in the Rebecca Solnit story of. In these moments of crisis, we can discover true and authentic community. I think one of the things I hold is like, oh, I hope everyone knows the rosary or whatever their version of prayer is. When the the planes start holding the peace around inner spiritual, what's the prayer you teach when the plane's about to crash? Um,
1: Mindfulness-based stress reduction.
0: <laughs> Good one. <laughs> no,
1: I, I think it's genius. I think it's genius. What people don't understand is that the Buddhists were incredible at systematizing these disciplines and creating a secular container to train people in them.
0: Mm. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. in crisis, we should be
0: doing meditation,
1: right? We should <laughs> be doing forms of mindfulness and somatic therapy that a lot of it emanates from mystical disciplines, right? Now, the rosary... It's a very concrete cultural practice. My (laughs) grandma did the rosary. I was given rosaries all my life from my grandma and other nuns that I would hang out with and stuff. I've done the rosary all throughout my childhood. It's in there. If I started doing it, I would remember it. But I don't think that it's practical to teach people the
0: rosary. A Christian training institute. I know you've batted this idea around over the years. And I'm wondering how... When you envision it, how would it look similar or different to Momentum?
1: It seems like what you're talking about is I had a vision in the past of the possibility of creating an incubator for new spiritual orders. Like that was something I was playing around with and maybe even getting a core together to do that. Now, since then, I radically failed. Like that, thing is, <laughs> that vision has been dead and buried. Well, so, maybe some yeah. listener wants to
0: uh, to resurrect it.
1: So uh, you're like, what would the dead corpse look like? I, I don't <laughs> really know. You know, I'm not.
0: Yeah. Sure. Well, it's amazing what can happen uh, with God's help after a couple days dead.
1: <laughs> I love this. You bring back Christian theology. Into it. That's hilarious. Um, anyways, yes, I am interested in building inner spiritual order. I, I'm moving in that direction. And Adam Bucko and the great leaders, the community of incarnation and the, the Center for Spiritual Imagination has given me a taste, of a model like an oblate program that's primarily over Zoom with people doing individual practice within primarily a nuclear family setting. I've seen the, the values of that that we need more of that. I think that there is a yearning for that. I I think traditional religious life just isn't the container. And I I think even things that I was really excited about, like, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh's community had a lot of uh, pledged religious people, but I don't think that can scale. I think it's very dependent on the top-level leaders running that. It's very dependent. It's very top-heavy. I think we need other expressions that are more calibrated to modern life and are more integrated into lay life. Mm. I'm interested in exploring that. And I think that there needs to be not one, but a flourishing, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. That's Mm. Quote from the Chinese Revolution, but they're not mutually exclusive. I think it creates an ecology of many people experimenting with the rebirth. And in some ways, I want to be very supportive of you. And I just want to say, Duncan, even though I'm not on the same page about exactly your your so
0: <laughs> interest in the old, the it's old. A, it's a loving. Stuff. It's a loving back and forth, or I experience yes. that way.
1: Well, it's just, I inherited this disdain for these old Catholic ways from my parents. It's yeah. just like you, you have this like convert of liking all the, you know, my, my parents fought to like not wear the abbot, you know what I mean? Right. Like,
0: my parents and I'm fought, like, hey, get me a hair shirt. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. So I'll tell you, I like discipline. I love discipline. Oh, I
0: thought you were going to say I like hair shirts.
1: Well, I've never practiced with a hair shirt. If somebody explained how it's part of a mystical practice, I'd probably be wearing a hair shirt right oh, now. Oh, let me
0: know when your birthday is. I'll find one <laughs> for you.
1: But the point <laughs> is, I think you have had great experiences. And I think because of that, you have real wisdom and insight about what is needed.
0: Well, I really appreciate the encouragement and that expression of confidence. You wrote, this year, although my vocational work has been going well, I found myself having just broken up with my recent girlfriend and feeling pain that my community was in a period of instability. I felt lost. Um, so I went again for 10 days to a Vipassana retreat, this time in the forest of Northern California, to take a drink from the monastic waters. Once again, I reemerged grounded and feeling that I'm doing what I need to do before I die. And I felt grateful for that blessing that St. Francis gave us with his last words, I've done what was mine to do. May Christ teach you what is yours. I'm wondering what you feel like you're doing before you die. Well, what whoever was...
1: wrote that, that's good. I don't know who wrote yeah. that. <laughs> so, maybe I your, like maybe that your brother Mark wrote
0: that for you. I know no, you all I wrote
1: through. that. I wrote
0: that. <laughs> it's just sometimes hard to remember that. I I'm actually just joking.
1: My brother doesn't like to work with me on my updates. He finds them too personal. He's like, no, you got to do that. I don't want to do too much editing on that. So um, what was the
0: question? Well, I just, I hear that you're going through a moment of things falling apart in many ways, but also uh, this deep sense that you're grounded in doing what you need to do before you die. I'm wondering what that work is.
1: Well, I wrote that when I was in post-retreat high. <laughs> I don't know if I feel that right at this moment, but I think what's been really hard for me is that I really hacked my way out of a traditional life lifestyle and family. And it's sort of worked. For 15 years, I've had an intentional community and there's been these beautiful cycles of ups and downs and that's been really beautiful. At this point in my life, I'm in a midlife crisis because it's not working. I have to build alternative family. I need to build things that meet different needs because I'm getting older. So I have to reevaluate how to build community and I need a new form of community to hold me. And it, that's just really hard. That's just really hard. I'm in a transition yeah. where I have to grieve this stage of my life. And I don't know the solution. I'm gonna try to form a new community. I'm gonna try to not give up on the vision of, of community. But in some ways the nuclear family for a lot of people especially as you get older becomes one of the only forms of having community in our lives. Yeah. And so can we build a community that is embedded in in the nuclear family have an extended kinship? I think it actually does make us happy, but that doesn't mean that it's sustainable. Mm. It's like what uh the supports to creating co-housing or creating Intentional community is just not there. Our our society is, economic, politically, culturally, is really pulling people away from that way of living, even if it's not healthy. We live in an addictive society that's individualistic, that's pulling people in that direction. It's very hard to fight against that inertia of where we are in history and culture. Mm. And so... That's my crisis right now. And Mm. I'm trying to rebuild something. I'm trying to think about new ways of doing stuff. But right now, it's hard for me to have
0: hope around that. Thank you for your honesty, Paul. I'll
1: say this real quick. God, show me the most miserable so I'll know my people's plight. Free me to pray for others for you are present in every person. Help me take responsibility for my own life so I can be free at last. Grant me the courage to serve others, for in service there is true life. Help me be honest and patient so I can work with other workers. Bring forth song and celebration so that the Spirit will be alive among us. Let the Spirit flourish and grow, so we'll never tire of struggle. Let us remember all those that have died for justice, for they have given us life, and help us love even those... That hate us, so we can change the world. Amen. Amen. And that was—it's um, called called the United Farmworker Prayer. Sometimes it's called the Cesar sabez Prayer.
0: Appreciate your uh, your showing up for this. Thank you so much, Paul, for your generosity of time. Bye. to DuncanHilton.net to find a full archive of podcasts and my weekly newsletter. You can also find links there to daily prayer and meditation groups. This podcast is not supported by grants or salary, but by listeners like you. You can also find a link at DuncanHilton.net to make a donation. Questions, comments, and suggestions for guests can be emailed to Duncan at DuncanHilton.net.